Okay, good morning. Whoa, that kind of <laughs> I'll blow you out of your seats here. Yes, is there anybody in the foyer, left in the foyer? Okay, well, I'm going to uh, sing good morning to you. No, I'm not really. <laughs> well, this is the last morning of our Women in the Word studies on wisdom in the Bible for this year. Let's give, uh, before we get started here, let's give a big praise thank you to the crew that puts this wonderful study together for us. It takes a lot of talent and hard work to get everyone on the same page for a whole year. The music, the leaders in their meetings, the booklets organized and printed and assembled, and the speakers, all of it. So, um, and by the way, Justin takes care of the technology piece, which is huge. So let's all say a big thank you to everybody. Good job. Yes. Oh, what a blessing. Okay. I hope you had a wonderful uh, time earlier and enjoyed working the lesson for this, this today. It was meant to bring back some memories of your past. So, do you remember a time in your life when you were so overwhelmed by an event that you couldn't move or maybe even speak? Like, um, like the first time you saw your baby and looked into that little face. Or maybe another moment that you had that left you completely and totally awestruck. One that you might not even be able to retell to another person. But when you think about it, it still brings back that feeling of total awe. Even making you dizzy. I think Psalm 145, this psalm, might have been David's response to one of those moments. Like when that small, smooth stone he put into that, sling, that slingshot sank into the head of the evil nine-foot-tall giant that had taunted and terrorized the troops and made fun of the Israeli god. There he lay, dead. You talk about praising. I'll bet David was overcome. I hope you've had moments kind of like that in this Women in the Word study we've done this year and gleaned some of the wisdom that blows you away and startles your heart when you ponder our great God. Jack Collins, <clears throat> in his expository commentary, said, the function of this hymn of praise, Psalm 145, is to reinforce one another in their assurance and enjoyment of the doctrine of the untiring goodness and generosity of God toward his people. That's you and me. 
just like we studied in the in the lesson this week his his indescribable benevolence ultimately toward all humankind and all creation it was all in psalm 145 cs lewis recorded his own initial revulsion at the element of praise in the Psalms because it gives the impression that God somehow needs such praise from his creatures. And Lewis said, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of praise in terms of a compliment or approval or the giving of an honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless it's deliberately checked. The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they really care about. Like, for example, have you ever noticed the crowds at the Super Bowl praising a player's touchdown? They, yeah, you've seen your sons and your husbands and even your daughters and sisters go crazy over that. Or have you ever praised one of your children or grandchildren for a great report card or you cleaned your room or you mowed the lawn. Do they still do that? <laughs> Maybe not so much, yeah. Or have you ever spontaneously raised your hands after singing that hymn, How Great Thou Art? Or maybe uh, put your hand over your heart for the national anthem. I know I have many times. Lewis continued, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its own appointed consummation. This is the last of the 73 Psalms of David, and it introduces the next five hymns of praise, Psalm number 146 through 150, that finish the book of Psalms, or the Psalter, as the Jews call it. <clears throat> John MacArthur says, David penned, this most exquisite conclusion to celebrate the king of eternity for who he is and what he has done and what he has promised. Psalm 145 begins the great crescendo of praise that might be called the final hallel. Psalm 145 through 150. Psalm 145 is a hymn, and it's called a song of praise, and joins Psalm 103 in telling about God's great love for us and what he is really like. 
It lies at the heart of biblical faith, presenting God's sovereignty in the framework of divine benevolence. It literally shouts to you and me, pay attention here. It's so important, both because it's an acrostic and therefore implies some kind of comprehensiveness. And because it celebrates God's generous providence, the word acrostic means that each verse begins with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Our American English alphabet contains how many letters? 26 letters. And its comprehensiveness means that every word we speak is made up of those 26 letters. Every thought we think or read or imagine is formed with those 26 letters. But the Hebrew alphabet is very different than ours. And I couldn't possibly define it. So, I invited my dear friend, Lenore Mulliken to come explain some very interesting facts about the Hebrew language. And you are in for a treat. Lenore grew up in Israel isn't that amazing? As a daughter to missionaries who served among the Jews and the Arabs. She grew up with Hebrew and English and some Arabic being spoken. After college, she returned with her husband to serve as medical missionaries in the Gaza Strip. Eventually, as God led, they found themselves in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where she and her husband founded a ministry whose purpose was to help Christians like you and me understand their Hebrew roots. Lenore got a, a master's degree in biblical literature and another in biblical languages from Oral Roberts University. She taught Hebrew at ORU for 30 years and published a textbook for biblical Hebrew based on the book of Ruth. Other than her twin great-granddaughters, who are now seven months old, her special love is comparing biblical texts in ancient languages. So, Lenore, come up and enlighten us. Okay, she will be back. <laughs> she has to keep us excited, right, and keep us going. <laughs> okay, so I was about ready to hear her teach the Hebrew alphabet, weren't you? <laughs> yes. She's so excited about it. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, I have, what, 10 minutes? I can probably teach you the Hebrew alphabet, you know, and then the vowels yeah, and all right. that stuff, right? <laughs> okay, the Hebrew, it isn't that really that, all that hard as it seems but the Hebrew language is said to be the language of angels. Eliezer ben Yehuda, considered, he was considered the father of modern Hebrew. He wrote at the end of the 19th century, learn Hebrew and you will be healed. His dream of restoring Hebrew as a spoken language in the land of, of the Bible was fulfilled and it became the official language of the state of Israel. So I was... Uh, 
in Israel. My parents went there to be um, missionaries when it was still called Palestine. We were there when Israel became a state in 1948. So Hebrew was used among Jews, Arabic was used among the Arabs, and most everybody knew some English, but not everybody. A lot of people still used uh, languages from the different countries they came to Israel from. But Hebrew, during the time of Jesus, was spoken as well as a written language. Often we hear that, oh, the Bible was in Hebrew, but, but by the time of Jesus, they weren't speaking it. They were speaking Aramaic. Well, there's been a lot of research done in Israel by a Jewish and Christian um, uh, scholars that have shown that, that Hebrew was actually spoken, not just read the Bible, but spoken, especially among certain uh, uh, of, of the people there, and that would include Galilee and, uh, and probably Jerusalem a lot also. So everyday, everyday people would speak, still speak Hebrew among each other, although most people knew Aramaic because the lingua franca of the Jews throughout the world, they were using Aramaic. Some of the Jewish leaders felt like you shouldn't use uh, biblical, he, the, the Hebrew language, because it's too biblical, it's too holy to use in everyday language. Uh, but it did continue among uh, some people as spoken, but it was kind of revived, pretty much revived as a spoken language after having not been used in a daily spoken language since around 200 to 300 AD. But Jesus would have known not only Hebrew, Aramaic, and also Greek, and he probably knew some Latin to speak with the, Roman, uh, the Romans that were there at the time. Uh, the Greek, in Greek, they actually uh, have a word for Hebrew, and, and it's Hebraeus or Hebraisti. Um, and yet people say, have, you'll see in Bibles, a little asterisk when it says that they were speaking, somebody was speaking in Hebrew, and they'll have a note down at the bottom, it, it's really Aramaic. Well, there's a definite word for Hebrew and Greek, and it, when it says Hebrew, it means Hebrew. Uh, in uh, uh, the Roman, during the time of the Roman Empire, the language was known as Ivrit, and that's the word known today. And so we talk about the Jews, we talk about Israelis. Um, we don't usually call them Hebrews today, but the language is Hebrew, which is Ivrit. Uh, by the rabbis and many Christians, it was actually considered to be the first language, the language of creation. The Old Testament that we call Hebrew scriptures was written almost entirely in Hebrew. Part of Daniel, a big part of Daniel, uh, some of Ezra was written in Aramaic, a sentence or two in, in Jeremiah, but most of it was, is written in Hebrew, which by Israelis today, people that live in Israel today learn Hebrew, they can read the Bible and understand it very well, but it would be sort of like um, King James with, with some of our young people today. There are some words that are not used anymore, and, uh, and so it's... Uh, helpful to have a more modern translation, which there is actually the New Testament. There was a, a, a translation from the Greek by Dalich, and then there was another one, a couple of translations of the Greek New Testament into Hebrew, but they tried to make it sound like uh, the Hebrew Bible. And uh, so my father helped with uh, translating the Bible into modern Hebrew, more up-to-date for the language that's used uh, today. So I'll talk a little bit about the Hebrew alphabet. On the 
handout you have on the back uh, a very small picture of the Hebrew alphabet. But if you notice, it, well, maybe you, yeah, if you can see, that's very tiny, sorry, you can enlarge it later if you want to, or go online and find a lot of uh, examples of Hebrew alphabet. But on the right is the first letter of the alphabet called the Aleph, that every letter of the alphabet has a name and a sound. So the first letter is Aleph, the second number, uh, letter is Bet, Put them together, in Hebrew it's the Aleph Bet, in English it became our word, the alphabet. Oh my we're talking Hebrew when you're saying, you know the alphabet, you know the Aleph Bet. The third one going from right to left at the top is the Gimel, and the fourth one is uh, the Dalit. Um, <clears throat> so how did it start out? It started out most probably as pictures, and the, the word mm -hmm. for Ox in, in ancient Hebrew was aluf, and that became the name aleph. And so many, many words start with the ah sound, but not necessarily all of them. If you look at these 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet that are listed, there, won't, there are not any vowels. The, they're all consonants. So how do you know how to pronounce it? Of course, people spoke the language and they knew what it was supposed to, supposed to be. If, if you take some words, say a sentence, common sentence in English, and just write the consonant without the vowels, you can usually, because you know what it should be, fill in the, the vowels that are there. Um, but later, uh, the Masoretes, uh, and this was around 7th, 8th, 8th century AD, decided that to be sure they don't lose the correct pronunciation of the Hebrew Bible, they would add vowels. So how did they add it? They added it by dashes and dots underneath and on top of the letters. Because the, the scripture was holy, they were not allowed to change any spacing. And so they couldn't add letters to it to represent the, the vowels. So they did use some letters like uh, vav, and that would, would be just a little short line on top and, and then going down to the line on the, on, beside it. Um, and that could have a dot on top and that would be the sound O. It's normally a V or a W, but it could be an O. It could have three dots angled underneath and that would be O. Basically, you have the same vowels we have in English, A-E-I-O-U would be pronounced A-E-I-O-U. So it's not, again, not really hard to kind of adapt to it. You see which dots represent what, where the dots are placed on top or under uh, the letters. Now, besides the olive being an ox head, and if you look at that olive, it sure doesn't look like an ox head. But that's because so many centuries ago, they had the picture and then it evolved, the letters evolved and changed over time. Uh, the bet is a little easier to see, the, the second one on the top. That means house, bet means house. And so they say bet, but then they know that it's the sound b, the first sound of the letter, b, like a b. The gimel came from gamal, that meant camel. And so you, uh, uh, when, they, when they said the word gimel, then, oh, the sound is the G, the G. And then the dalet, the fourth one going from right to left at the top, uh, was the word for door, delet, and it became the name dalet, and so the D is, 
was the sound of it. And there's significance to it, like the, the door has, is open on the left, it's always supposed to be open uh, to guests. So the letters evolved. It's not hard to get a chart. Once you know the Hebrew alphabet, you can get a chart and you can see, oh, in the first century, this is what the letters looked like. And you can read ancient manuscripts if you know a little bit mm -hmm. of, of Hebrew. Um, so uh, Becky introduced us a little bit to the acrostics. It's called, the, the, in the Psalms, they're called the alphabetic alphabetical acrostics. And that's actually uh, by the Jews, the people that are studying the Bible, it was a method of memorization because most people, of course, didn't have the written word. And if you have a scroll, um, uh, the leader or the rabbi is reading it, the others are just listening and they're memorizing by listening. So it was a very good way to memorize words. You say, okay, so verse one, is, uh, starts with the Aleph, verse 2 starts with Bet, so I forgot what mm. verse 3 is, but it starts with Gimel, and so then it's a very good help for memorizing uh, scripture. Uh, in, the, in the Hebrew scripture, the, the Hebrew, uh, the Old Testament, in Psalms, there are about six or seven, seven, I think, uh, places, uh, Psalms actually, that have this alphabetical acrostic, and there's, there's differences. Uh, uh, in Psalm 145, what's interesting is if you go through and you're, you're looking for the 22 letters of the alphabet, each one starting a verse, and you'll see that one's missing, and that's the noon, which is the N sound. You say, why was that missing? You jump to a, to a verse and it's totally not there. Well, the rabbis have to figure out all the details of why things happen. So they came up with the conclusion that the word would have been nafal that in that phrase that they could have used at the beginning, but, but nafal means fallen. And we don't want to start a sentence in this wonderful rejoicing uh, psalm by saying fallen. And that immediately <laughs> reminds them of a verse that talks about fallen women. We can't do that. So, uh, so they just left it off totally. Uh, Psalm 9 and 10, the two Psalms together uh, make up the whole alphabet. The most oh. complete acrostic, alphabetical acrostic is Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest Psalm in the book of Psalms. And uh, it's interesting because you have kind of like sections or stanzas, and the first stanza will be like Aleph, and then all eight verses will start with the letter Aleph. The first word will start with the letter Aleph. The next eight, uh, a bet would be the next uh, group, and all the next eight verses under that will start with, uh, with uh, uh, the B, the, uh, with words with the B. So uh, our mathematician here, I had to ask her, what's eight times 22? And I think she came up with 176. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Anyway, uh, math is not my area. I have to you know, get help from her. Anyway, that's a, that's a very interesting... Uh, Others are uh, Psalm 34 that use the alphabetic uh, acrostic, Psalm 37, 111, and 112. And uh, a couple of them have, like, uh, each, uh, each verse has two sentences, and each of the two sentences will start with a word that has that letter as well. 
So it's an acrostics, alphabetic acrostics is an interesting thing to study and look into. Also, there's numbers, the numerals, you know. The numbering system, if you read the Bible in Hebrew, whenever it comes with across a, a, a word for uh, that you want to say numbers, like there were 1,200 people, they write it all out. So it'd be like us writing one O-N-E. And we, what we use today is Arabic numerals. And that was de developed uh, later. So, so uh, the numbers also are represented by letters. So the first letter of the alphabet is one, the second letter is two, the third letter is three. So you can actually combine your letters and come up with, with numbers, even really high numbers. So you say, well, there's only 22 letters. That's only 22. No, after 10, then you take one and uh, uh, you, you, you call it 20 after 10. So you take the, the letter that represents 20 and you add the one to it to make it 21 and so on. So there is a whole system to being able to to read numbers uh, through the letters. So I listed a few praise words uh, on your handout. Um, uh, the one under the alphabet are some uh, beautiful uh, praise words that Becky pulled out for us. But on the other side, the, the, the top side, some of the Hebrew praise words. First of all, what's interesting uh, about uh, uh, psalm 145 is it's the only psalm that is actually called a praise. It starts out with, with this is a song of praise, Tehillim. Tehillah is praise, is the word for praise. There are a lot of, like she said, praise words. But we have also other Hebrew words that work. But uh, Tehillah comes from a root, which if you look down there, it's the fourth one down uh, under verse 2. And it's called Hallel. So Tefillah is a word, but it's based on the root Hallel. Hallel means, uh, it, the basic meaning is shine, clear, celebrate, boast. Um, so I'll uh, uh, just show you, well, the, the, the name of the book of Psalms is Tehillim. It's praises. The whole book of Psalms is called the, the book of praises in Hebrew. So you might want to repeat after me, Tehillim, Tehillim. Okay, then it, again, like I said, it comes from Hallel. So what word do you know that starts with Hallel? Hallelujah, that's Hebrew, yeah. It does have a H in the Hebrew, Hallelujah. Um, and it's based on three-letter roots. So off to the left, I put the three-letter roots of some of the words we see at the beginning of this psalm. So if we say hallelujah, it has more than just hallel. You have the ooh sound. Ooh means y'all in Oklahoma language. <laughs> <laughs> you plural, you plural. And then at the end, it's yah. Yah is short for the covenant name of God, Y-H-V-W or Y-H-W-H. Anyway, the H, the, the W and the V, were used uh, at different time periods of the language. Today they use the V, but in ancient times they used to use the W. Uh, so, hallelujah is bless the name of the covenant name of the Lord. In the King James, I don't remember what other translations, 
when it's Yahweh, we sometimes pronounce it Yahweh, Jehovah. We don't really know how the name is pronounced because they did not add vowels that gave you a way to pronounce it. They took the vowels from the Lord, word Lord in Hebrew, Adonai, and they stuck it under the Y-H-W-H, the Yahweh. So Jehovah, we know for sure it's not J. Okay, anytime you're, you're wondering about names in, of places and people uh, in the Old Testament it starts, and New Testament, it starts with J. There's no J in Hebrew. It's uh -oh. a Y. So Jerusalem is Yerushalayim. Jericho is Yericho. It's like a Y instead of a, a J. And so many names start with J in, in, when you put it in the English. So just one other I want to mention of these words that I put, and that's, um, well, a couple of others. The w other one from verse 1 is Rome, Rome. The three-letter root is Rome. To be high, exalted, I think the translation, one of them says extol, and it's to be a high and exalted. And if you talk about these mountains out here, we say Rome, it's very high, they're very uh, high, so we exalt God by lifting him high. And the next one I'm, I'm going to mention briefly is Barach, a word we use a lot, bless. And it's best, based on three-letter roots. So I put in capitals like B-R, and the last sound is, is Ha. So say that one after me, Barach. Barach. So when you're telling somebody to, to bless, you say Baruch. So when you're, the, all the prayers, almost all the prayers in, the, in Hebrew start with, blessed are you, Lord our God. So it's Baruch, Ata, you, Adonai, Lord, Eloheinu, our God. But the basic, of this, of mean, basic meaning of this word is to kneel. So this type of praise word is like in adoration, kneeling and praising God in that way, that kind of a blessing. So it was valuable, and sometimes some, uh, some people find it valuable, to go to the Hebrew word that was used, which often will, will translate interchangeably in English, bless or praise, and, and if you go back to what the Hebrew was behind it, then that will show you what type of blessing and praise. The very last one I listed was Shavach. Shabbat is a very loud praise uh, and dressed in a very loud sound and talking about God's glory and triumph. And uh, so that gives you just a little idea. I mean, these are only from verses uh, 1, 2, and 4. You go through all those uh, praise words, there's much, much more. But um, I don't think we have time for that because Miss Becky here, she has something else planned. <laughs> I know it. Thank you. Thank you, Lenore. Oh, that was... Doesn't that make you hungry for more to see what she's got? Okay. Well, let me find this here. All right. Centuries ago, in the Babylonian Talmud, uh, they recognized that Rabbi Avina said... Now listen to this. Anyone who recites Psalm 145 three times every day is promised a place in the world to come. Just in case you didn't know. <laughs> and <laughs> that got included 
three times in the Jewish daily prayer schedule. So one remarkable feature of Psalm 145 is the way in which it uses so many different words for praising. And uh, Lenore showed you those. There are just a few of them there on the back of your handout. Most of these words are words of action. They are do words. On the back of the handout, um, you can have fun applying these to your life. God intended for us to do. We are people of action. So what are some of the words you use in your praise worship to God? Do you make up some of your own? Do you cry or cry out to him or just cry? In Luke chapter 19, verse 40, some of the Pharisees came up to Jesus and said, Rebuke your disciples for joyfully praising God in loud voices. And what did Jesus say to them? He told them, If they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. We delight to praise what we enjoy. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. And then there is a little surprise coming. So bow your heads for a second here. Um, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you. Since it's you who feeds us and you who meet our needs, we praise you. Help us to be compassionate to everyone we meet or know. Help us, Lord, that we'll speak your praise and do your will. And Father, as Psalm 145 says, let all flesh bless your holy name forever and ever. Amen. Well, right now, stay where you are because... We're going to sing a Jewish praise song. Everybody go, (coughs) get ready. Here it comes. Okay. And we're going to be dismissed in joy. We're going to play a song called Hava Nagila. Have you heard that before? Okay. Say that. Hava Nagila. Hava Nagila. That means, let us rejoice. So everybody say, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice. Awesome. Okay, everybody stand up now. And I want you to listen to a little bit of this song. And, uh, because you, how many of you have heard it before? Raise your hand. Oh, good, yes. Okay. As you hear it, I want you to step tap to the rhythm. Yes, you. And um, Lenore and I are going to show you step tap, although that's not that hard. Okay. And then we're going to sing it and dance to it. Now, the words will be up here. And if you can't pronounce the words that are up here, just fill in with a la, la, la or something. (laughs) But keep singing. Yes. Then... We're going to exit the sanctuary singing and praising to this song. Ready? Okay. Now this is just to practice. 
Okay, now you got it. So uh, Justin's going to. Yes, this this isn't the one she grew up with. You know, does that have the words to it, Justin? Okay. Okay, it'll be up there. Veni se ma. Veni me ah. Everybody say that. Awesome. You're Jewish. <laughs> okay, and you can put your arm on the shoulder of the person next to you. Don't pull them over, but yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 